That's it. That's it. That's what's up. That's what's up. All right, Vic. That's good. Any, anybody else with uh, verses 1 to 8 or part of 1 to 8? Amen. Well, we're batting 1,000 this morning. We're going to give God praise. Amen. Well done. Well done, my brother. Well done. Well done. Well, let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Indeed, Lord, our hallelujah belongs to you. And you deserve it. You deserve the highest praise. You deserve consistent praise. You deserve the praise of those that you have brought out of darkness into light. And we do praise you for your great salvation, your steadfast grace, your steadfast mercy and love. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would show your love to us again this morning by opening our ears to hear your word. Showing us more of Jesus, your Savior, and, and what he has done in our lives. We do pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand, and understanding help us to grow, and growing to bring you glory. Lord, we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I asked this question earlier, how many of us make New Year's resolutions or set goals for the year? It's a perfectly great thing to do. It's, in fact, in many ways, it's a needful thing to do, a helpful thing to do. Um, it's been said that a man without a plan is not a man at all. It's the only Friedrich Nietzsche quote I have. I like that quote, though I don't like Nietzsche. It seems to me that central to being fruitful, productive people it's having some kind of plan, whether it's, you know, uh, informal, scribbled on the back of a napkin, or whether you're hanging out with Don Coven and you got special calendars with 14 colors and all those kinds of things. However you approach it, planning can be good. Here's my question for us this morning. How much of our New Year planning and how much of our resolution setting is sort of targeted to the people we want to be? Not just the achievements and the accomplishments we want to make, but who we are. When we think about our resolutions and we think about our goals and our targets for the year, are we prayerfully planning for the sort of increase and the fulfillment of our spiritual identity? Or, and there's nothing wrong with this, don't get me wrong, are we mainly planning for certain kinds of accomplishments? Achievements. The last time we were in First Peter, one of the questions or one of the things that we thought about was identity. We said it earlier in the service, the deepest work the Bible does in us is not work to change our behavior, but the work it does to change our identity. That who am I still is one of the most found, fundamental, foundational questions that we all have to answer. And in some sense, what I'm encouraging with our resolutions is, is that we be answering that question, who am I? Who has God called me to be? Who do I want to be in the Lord? How would you answer that? How would that be reflected in your resolutions? 
This is a question all of us have to answer. This is a question all of us have to figure out. Because if we don't figure it out and we don't answer it correctly, then it could lead to really disastrous consequences. Think, for example, about our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, Genesis chapters 2 and 3, chapter 3 in particular, could be read as a story about an identity crisis. Adam and Eve are created by God. They are put in the garden. They are creatures. God is their creator. That means he owns them. That means he has the right to tell them how to live. It means then as creatures, they are meant to respond to God's word in obedience. Then the tempter comes along in Genesis chapter 3 and begins to whisper to Eve and tells her something like this. The reason why God don't want you to eat from that tree is he knows as soon as you eat from that tree, you're going to be like him. He's tempting her out of her identity. You're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. Eve and Adam, forgetting themselves, fall for the temptation. And sin enters the world. The entire world is in the chaos that it's in. Getting the identity question wrong will often lead to getting the behavior wrong. Getting the identity question wrong will cause us to lose our way uh, in the world and to lose our way in the relationship with God. But getting it right, answering it biblically, understanding who we are from God's perspective will fill our lives with profound meaning and clear direction. We started thinking about this a little bit when we were thinking about verses 4 to 8 a couple of weeks ago. Um, these two verses, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, are kind of closing off that paragraph. And Peter is circling back to the theme that he introduced around verse 5 in terms of our identity. He's going to talk with us about our identity and talk with us about our vocation that grows out of that identity. And he's going to be redefining who we are, not just individually, but as a people. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I'm going to break those two sentences up, those two verses up, into the, the sort of clauses that, that are there. There are four sort of clauses there. And we've got a clause for each point. Point number one, we are God's people. We are God's people. Point number two, we are designed for praise. We are designed for praise. Point number three, we belong to God. We belong to God. And point number four, because we have received his mercy. Because we have received his mercy. Peter is going to try and help us think about what it means to be God's people and what it is that identity calls us to be. First Peter chapter 2, verses Let's start at verse 4, and we'll focus on verses 9 and 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Our text for this morning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is pressed to do in this letter is to get these Christians spread out through um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, spread out in sort of the Asian world, right? What he's pressed to do is to get them to understand that they are one people, that they belong together as a people. Notice the contrast beginning in verse 9. begins with the word but. He's drawing a contrast from what he just said at the end of verse 8, where he's talking about those who disobey the word as they were destined to do. He's contrasting the people he's writing to, to people who reject the gospel, who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who do not believe that he was crucified for our sins, who do not believe that he was raised on the third day for our salvation, and do not believe that he is reigning in heaven at the Father's right hand, and do not believe that he's coming again a second time to gather his people and to usher in God's kingdom. That's the truth of the gospel, and there are people in the world who reject it. If they die rejecting that message, all that's left is God's righteous judgment. And Peter says, but, now you're different as God's people. You're not like that people who disobey the truth. You have actually obeyed the truth. You have believed that Jesus is God's unique son. You have believed in his incarnation, which we celebrated just last week at Christmas, that he took on human flesh and came into the world. You believe that he was perfectly righteous in his obedience to the Father, and that righteousness was not just for himself, but it was for us to provide our righteousness. You believe that he was crucified on the cross, and that was no accident. That was not a terrible thing that happened to a good man. That was the plan of God, to crucify his own son as an atonement, a sacrifice for our sin. And you believe that three days later, the grave was cracked and Jesus rose. And you believe that he appeared to as many as 500 people at one time and that he ascended into heaven where he reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And you, unlike those other people, you believe that this same Jesus is coming again in glory to gather his people and bring them into the kingdom. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who believe the gospel and those who don't. And so he's drawing this contrast, but you, and the you there is plural. He's talking to all these Christians across Turkey, across Asia, across that part of the world. He's writing and talking to all of us Christians today. You, collectively, plural, there's some things you need to know about yourself, about your identity. He gives us four things in the beginning of verse 9. But you are a, number one, chosen race. Number two, a royal priesthood. Number three, a holy nation. And number four, a people for his own possession. You said, Pastor T, that's just, that's just right there in the verse. That's right. That's what a preacher's supposed to do, tell you what's right there in the verse, right? Four things. 
Number one, you are a chosen race. Now, we need to be careful here, get this really clear as to what Peter means. Our notions of race were not known in the ancient world. So when we use this term race, he's, he's using the Greek word genos, which basically means kind, right? You are a kind of people, and the kind of people you are is not some distinct people from other people sort of physically and biologically. He's not talking about races. He's not talking about, um, you know, you are superior because you have this skin color or this eye color or this hair texture. That is an abomination of Scripture. Peter says here, you are a chosen race. What, what separates you is nothing physical. What separates you is this spiritual reality that God chose you. This is the most fundamentally important thing about our identity as Christians, that God chose us. Peter starts the letter this way, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? To the elect exiles, to the chosen exiles, to those people who are scattered abroad in the world. But nevertheless, though you're rejected by the world, you are chosen by God. That's the most marvelous thing about you, beloved. That's the most marvelous thing about us as a people. We've been chosen. We're like those kids on the playground. It's time to play kickball. You got two captains. They got to choose their teams. At first, you're trying to be cool. Like, you know, I know they're going to choose me. I know they're going to choose me. They get through halfway to choosing. Then you start to be a little bit more thirsty. Choose me. Choose me. You, you don't want to be left out. You're just dying to be chosen. All of us have that longing in our hearts. And if we don't get our identity right, we'll try to satisfy that longing in the wrong places. Some people are just thirsting to be chosen by a man or a woman. Choose me, choose me. Some people are just dying to be chosen in their workplace. Some people here, maybe you're in high school or middle school or even college, you just want to be chosen by the right friend group, by the right sorority and fraternity. You're just dying to be chosen. That ache, that longing isn't wrong. It's meant to be satisfied by God. And here the text tells us that if we're Christians, that's who we are. We are chosen kind. We are a chosen race. And that's what God wants you to know most fundamentally. That he chose you. From before the world began, he looked out on all the people that ever would be. And he chose you, Rock. He chose you. He chose you, Christian. He chose you, John, Pat, Michael, Patrice. What a marvelous thing. That he chose you. And he made you a part of now this new spiritual kind, this new spiritual race, as it were. But not only that, notice what he says next, you are a royal priesthood. It's not just that he chose you, but now it, part of your identity, my identity, is he's made us priests. Now, you, you probably already ahead of me. Peter is in this section of the scripture reaching back to all kinds of things in the Old Testament, right? Even the idea of a chosen race that was said of Israel in the Old Testament. 
Israel was to be a nation of priests dedicated to serving God. And inside that nation, there would be the Levites, a, a particular tribe of people who would have the priestly responsibilities before God. Peter's reaching back, getting those aspects of ancient Israel's identity, wasn't ancient in his day, but Israel's identity, and he's now bringing them forward and applying them to the church. Because the church is the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was always a commercial, never the movie. The church is the movie. And the church includes Israel. It includes Jews who believe in Christ, but it also includes Gentiles, people from all nations and languages and tribes and groups. And all of us together now have become this royal priesthood. All of us now have this vocation. When we minister before God as priests, and not just any old raggedy priesthood, the royal priesthood, Peter. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our ministry is in his temple courts, not in a temple made with hands, not in a temple built with stone. We minister before the living God in all of his glory and holiness. We serve him as his royal priesthood. Notice the third thing he says. You're a holy nation. You guys will remember if you were with us when we were studying the book of Leviticus and we're thinking about holiness. That's been our theme over the last year and some change. We're thinking about holiness and we thought about how in Leviticus um, there are these categories that, that are used to help Israel understand uh, how it is they may be able to serve a holy God. That all things exist first and fundamentally in this category called common. Now we use common differently. If you say somebody's so common, that's not a, that's not. <laughs> that's not an encouragement, right? But in Israel, it just means that the thing is for common use. It can be used for what it's made for. It can be used by anybody. So this podium is for common use. So when the ark has different programs here and they use this podium, whether it's a church or not, a concert or whatever, it's just being a podium doing what a podium does. And so it's common. It can be used in common life, but it cannot be used in worship because it's common. Now, common things can also become unclean things, right? So if we do something that defiles that common thing, let's say um, the, the Old Testament law had laws about um, body emissions, you know, bleeding and sores and things of that sort. So let's just say, hey, I was up here, I coughed, I coughed on the podium, all of you all would move three rows back because, you know, it's a COVID world we're living in, um, but that cough and that germ would make this unclean. So now it can't even be used for common use. It has to be taken over here in this category of unclean. And before it can be used again, it has to be cleaned again. And so there had to be either a quarantine to set it aside for a certain amount of days to make sure that it wasn't infected. Or there had to be maybe also a sacrifice to ceremonially cleanse it so that it's common again. But now what God is concerned with is not common and unclean but holy. And this is where the common things are now sanctified. They are set apart and dedicated to God's use alone. That's what it means to be holy in a very fundamental sense, that you are set apart for God 
for God's use alone. And so common things could be consecrated. Priests were common things. The robes that they wore were common things. But through a certain ritual and certain sacrifices, those things would be consecrated and be set apart. And now would be appointed only for God's use. And Peter says here to the church, now you are a nation that's not common and not defiled. You are a nation who's been set apart over here as holy. Entirely and exclusively for God's service and use. The church was never meant to have a master other than Jesus. The church was never meant to serve a Lord other than Jesus. The church was never to give its energies to purposes other than the purposes that God himself had declared in his words. What it means for us to be holy, to be set apart, to be consecrated. We do not do things that defile us, and we are something more than common. We are set apart by the blood of Christ, our one sacrifice, as holy to the Lord God. That's who we are. And if that's who we are, that's got to govern how we see the world and interact with the world, right? So we can enjoy common things that are, that are commonly good. But if we're a holy people, we're not going to do the things that defile us. We're not going to do the things that make us unclean. No, and if we do, praise God, we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's sitting on his right hand making intercession for us, his blood still making propitiation for us. If we do find ourselves over here in some way unclean and defiled, we wash ourselves again in the blood of Jesus Christ and re-sanctify ourselves as God's holy people. The blood never loses its power. This is how we're always able to be God's holy people, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's who you are, beloved. You are, notice there, a holy nation. That word nation is where we get the word ethnicity from. So you see what the Bible is telling us about our identity. What's most fundamental about us is not our natural ethnic identity. Now, for the star by that, press pause, because I don't want you to get it twisted. It doesn't mean that who we are ethnically is unimportant. Because we know Revelation 5, Revelation 7, so many other places, that diversity in the human family, which is being brought now into God's family, that very diversity magnifies God's glory. Right? So this is real, but it's just not ultimate. This is real but it's not most foundational. We have become a new spiritual ethnicity, a holy nation, all because of our union with each other through faith in Jesus Christ, all because we have become God's people. Yes, I'm African American. Praise the Lord. Yes, my sister over here is from the Bahamas. Praise the Lord, Bahamian. Yes, my sister over here has got Jamaican background. And she's like, everybody want to be from Jamaica, man? <laughs> it's what it is, you know. Pastor Babatunde is Nigerian. I saw a video of, of, of this writer uh, on, on Instagram, and she's from Nigeria, and she comes to the States, and for the first time she experiences racism. 
she's like, everybody in Nigeria black, right? We got, we got tribal ethnic things going on, but the kind of American version of racism I had never encountered. I'm in class, I turn in a paper, the teacher comes back with the paper and says, this is the best paper in the class, I'd like to know who wrote it. She says, I raise my hand, and he looks at me with this surprise on his face as if black people weren't supposed to do really excellent things. And I love what she says. <laughs> I love what she says. At the end of the video, she says, basically, I'm surprised that he didn't know all Nigerians are brilliant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Jamaicans and Nigerians are the most proud people on the planet, right? Everybody want to be Jamaican or Nigerian, all right? But no, wh wherever we're from, Ireland, England, you name it, ethnically, yes, we come from those backgrounds, and those backgrounds are a part of who we are. Acts 17, 26, God has determined where the boundaries and the habitations. He's determined where we will be born, and, and he's determined what our ethnic background should be. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that in the least. Black, brown, white, yellow, whatever, we should not make it an idol, though. To the point where we disrupt the fact that we are a new nation, a holy nation, a spiritual ethnicity, dedicated and belonging to God. More about that in a moment. Notice finally, Paul wraps this up, or Peter, excuse me, wraps this up by saying, you are a people for his own possession. God's heart for you, beloved is that you and I, as a people, belong to him entirely. That, that we be his and, and he be ours. This is another way of saying that we are holy, but it's, it's more than that. It brings out God's loving ownership of us, his loving commitment to us. We belong to him the way a husband belongs to his wife, the way a wife belongs to her husband. We exist in a covenant love with God and he treasures us as his own possession. There's a tenderness and a sweetness there. That's maybe captured in a text like Zephaniah 3, 17, I think it is, where it talks about God exulting, E-X-U-L-T, sort of celebrating, exulting over us in love. Did you know that God sings over you? That's what Zephaniah says. He sings over us in love. You have become God's special people. There's a legitimate way in which we could walk around. Don't let it lead us to pride and arrogance. But there's a general, a general way in which we can walk around, all of us saying, if we are Christians, I'm God's favorite. I'm God's chosen, beloved, special people. I belong to him. This is who you are. This is who we are. This is who we is, to put it ebonically correctly. This is who we is. Do we think of ourselves that way? Do we rehearse this, preach this to ourselves? Do we actively work to get this deep down into our hearts such that it becomes our fundamental identity? So go back to your New Year's resolutions. Can you craft a resolution that guides you over the course of this year into embracing this identity more deeply and primarily? That's the work God wants to do by his spirit and his word in our lives to really make us a new people. 
Don't we need to be new people? Ain't the old people broken in ways that we can't quite solve? We need this newness. We need this holiness. We need to be this priesthood because that's who we are. We need to live into it rather than settle for sugar substitutes. Which brings us to our second point. We are designed for praise. You see that at the end of verse 9? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, as chosen people, as holy and belonging to God, as a royal priesthood, our vocation now is praise and worship. Our vocation now is the preaching of the greatness of the God who saved us. This is our purpose. Remember now, identity determines purpose. It makes sense, right? That if we are priests of the Most High God, then we should be extolling the excellencies of the Most High God. What it looked like for us to be priests of God, celebrating the greatness of BMW. What it looked like for us to be priests of God, giving all of our praises to our employer. But what it looked like for us to be priests of God, big up in ourselves. That's just, that doesn't fit. The identity and the activity don't square. But if we are God's holy people, if we are his chosen race, if we are his royal priesthood, then it makes all the sense in the world that what we speak about most, what we praise most, what we talk about most, what we proclaim most is the greatness of this God, notice, who brought us out of the darkness of our sin into the marvelous light of his salvation. The priests in the Old Testament had one job. It was a job with a lot of bullets on the job description, but they had one job. And that was to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. They stood as mediators between God and people. They wore this little turban, and on this turban was a gold plaque that said, Holy unto the Lord. And so they represented God's holiness to the people when the people came to worship and as they performed those sacrifices. And when they took the sacrifices into the Holy of Holies or took the sacrifices to the altar, they represented the people to God. We exist in the world as the New Testament church with that same purpose. To praise God for his holiness as his redeemed people, and to represent God in his holiness to the nations of the world. To proclaim his excellencies. How excellent is God to you? We end December, go into January, reflecting on things. Quite natural thing to do. It's a good thing to do. As Christian people, how much are we reflecting on the excellence of God? Flip the question to you another way. If if you had to offer a prayer of praise to God, sort of the way Essie led us this morning in the service, or just in the privacy of your own home, if you had to offer a prayer of praise now, not petition, not asking God for things. Not confessing, not admitting to God your wrongs, um, but just a prayer dedicated to praising God for his excellencies. How long could you stay in prayer? 
how disciplined are our thoughts such that they bend toward God's excellencies rather than our needs, rather than our wants, right? We have been saved. We've been made this new people so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our whole vocation is to tell people how great, how good, how wonderful God is. This is meant to be our, our everyday conversation. This is meant to be our special conversation. This is be something we sneak in wherever we can. How you doing today, brother? Let me tell you how excellent God is. Is that us? Is our conversation filled with praise? Or are we more apt to murmuring and complaining? Or are we more prone to discussing politics or sports? Don't get me wrong. Those all have their place. Just asking you a comparative question. I'm asking myself a comparative question. Comparatively, how fluent am I in sports talk compared to praise? How fluent am I in talking politics to talking theology? How fluent am I in talking about raising kids as compared to raising praise? Where's our conversation, church? How spiritual is it? Because the one thing I know, I'm a witness, and I trust there's a room full of witnesses, is that God is most excellent. He is most excellent. His love is excellent. I've felt it. His his goodness is most excellent. I've received it. I'm a witness, right? His righteousness is most excellent. It's the only thing I have that will make me right before a holy God. It's most excellent. His power is most excellent. Ain't nothing my God can't do, right? Pick pick an attribute. His holiness is most excellent. It is beautiful and pure and righteous altogether. Everything about God is most excellent. And our job is to proclaim that excellence. How have you noticed God's excellence in your own life? And have you told somebody? Have you proclaimed it? Let them know. That God is excellent. And, and if nothing else, let him know that God is excellent for saving you. That's what Peter's getting at when he says he's brought us from darkness into this marvelous light. We were all lost in darkness, weren't we? Mm. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Only me and Stephen apparently were lost in darkness. We were all lost in darkness, weren't we? Oh, see, here's the problem. This is why you didn't want to amen the first time, because we were so lost in darkness, we thought it was light. We call light darkness and darkness light, the Bible says. We were so lost in darkness that the problem was not just that we were in darkness, but as Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 19, we loved darkness rather than the light because our deeds were evil. He tells us around verse 20 or 21, we wouldn't come to the light because the light would expose our deeds. 
We were all like Gollum with that little ring, you know. Oh, my precious, my precious. Anybody try to put light on it, we run on deeper into the cave. My precious, my sweet. We all had that thing we didn't want exposed. We kept it in the darkness because our deeds were evil. That's where we were. We were lost in darkness, and we were in love with the darkness. So wonder we couldn't save ourselves. You ain't got to say it out loud, but think what darkness ripped your heart. Think about that thing that nobody else knew about that you were privately dedicated to. That thing that made you want to avoid holy people and the things of God. Or that thing that quietly made you feel guilty as you were in the midst of God's people. We all had it. It was our slave master. We were imprisoned to it. But then God sent Jesus. The light came into the world and shined in the darkness. And wherever light shines, darkness has to flee. He came into the world. The world rejected him. It was all according to plan. He came into the world to die for that sin that kept us in that darkness. Not just the polite sins that all the Christians confess, but that really impolite sin that make even the holiest Christians look at you kind of sideways. The ones that you're too ashamed to admit. He died for that. He carried that to the cross. It was nailed there with him. He atoned for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again three days later. And if it were possible, even more light flooded into the world. Not just the light of the incarnation, but the light of the resurrection, the light of the risen glory, the light of the coming glory. He shone forth, revealing the very glory and the radiance of God. And God in his kindness turned our heart around to no longer love the darkness, but to come into the light. How did he do that for you? What's your particular story? Tell your testimony. That's your vocation as a priest, is to share with others how God brought you out of darkness into light. So that they too might meet this Jesus who chases away the darkness and brings only light. That's our purpose in the world, is to tell people about this God. Now, let me just sort of check in with this, some of you. Because maybe some of you think that that's not enough purpose for you. And maybe some of you are tempted to think, yeah, that's nice. That's what Christians do and all. We'll do that around the holidays. And maybe in some extraordinary situation where God traps me into telling my testimony. Right? But that's not really my plan. See, I got plans for glory too. You know, I, I got plans. See, I, I need a name. Right? Yeah, I know they messed up with the Tower of Babel, but I'm, I'm going to build a different tower with my name at the top, Stark Industries, right? I'm going to light up the world. I got to get my shine. Some things I want. First of all, I want biceps. Rock hard abs. Right? 
And I want the trophy husband or the trophy wife and the two and a half kids and the really nice house and five cars for two drivers. I want my name on the magazine cover. I want to be promoted at work. I, 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 I. And when I get those things, then I'm good. Then I can praise God. I wonder if we can praise God when we got nothing. Because, see, you know, his excellence doesn't go up and down based upon what we got. He's just excellent. If I'm broke, he's excellent. If I just got paid, he's excellent. Right? If, if Christy go away for a weekend, he's excellent. I'm hungry that weekend, but he's still excellent. When she come back, he's the same excellent God, Right? If I'm sick in body, God is excellent and worthy to be praised. If I am strong and healthy, God is excellent and worthy to be praised. Some of us think we can only praise God when we're standing at the top of the mountain. And that's why we're mad when he prepares a valley for us. He's trying to get us to see that he's excellent in the valley just like he is on the mountaintop. That we're meant to praise him when we're low just like we're meant to praise him when we're high. That, that actually the basis of his praise is not whether we are low or whether we're high, but that he is excellent, altogether worthy. We, we, God wants us to grow in our ability to praise him this year. He wants us to grow in our ability to, to exalt him and to delight in him no matter what's going on in our lives because he in and of himself is worthy of it. I got to keep moving. Number three. We belong to God. We belong to God. You see that in verse 10? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, in some ways, he's restating what he said in verse 9. But he's bringing out again something a little bit unique. There's been a transition that's happened. We've gone from not God's people to being God's people. We were a part of a mass of humanity just out there, not knowing God, lost in our sin. And God came along and through faith in Christ adopted us into his family and made us now his people. Now, what I want us to get in this part of the text is something that I think the American church has never quite understood. And in fact, the American church at her worst has put up barriers to. God's project in the Bible might, might accurately be summed up as the first part of verse 10. The thing he's doing throughout the entire Bible is taking people who were not a people and making them a people, a new people, right? We could, we could trace the whole Bible this way. So it, maybe we say it begins with Abraham. Abraham's in Ur, he's in Babylon, he's a pagan, he's living with his mama and daddy, um, as you would have done in that sort of tribal society. He's raising his family, he's got a wife, but he doesn't have kids, uh, and they're there. All they know are their pagan gods and their pagan ways. And God says to Abraham, hey, look, I need you to leave your mama and your daddy. I need you to leave your country. I need you to go to a land that I'll show you later, 
and I'm going to make you a great nation there. So Abraham comes home from work, comes to Sarai. He says, hey, pack up the stuff. We're leaving. Sarai said, where are we going? We're going on vacation? He's like, no, no, no. God told me that we're going to go to a place that he ain't showed me. She's like, God, who? Who is this God? This God you're talking about ain't never spoke to nobody we know. Right? He's like, well, I didn't see him, but he, he said we got to go. So they pack up their stuff, and they leave now. God makes this promise to him in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 15 and 17, he's renewing the promise. He says, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the sands of the sea. I'm going to make you a nation. You're going to be a special nation for me. Abraham and his wife can't have kids. They're almost 100 years old. God gives him this promise, renews this promise. Sarah laughs in God's face. But God keeps his promise. There's a son, and then there's a grandson. And that grandson has 12 kids with four wives. He needed some discipleship, you see. He's got 12 kids with four wives. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They go into slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. When they go down there, it's like 70 of them. When they come out, they can't be numbered. They're a whole nation centuries later. In fact, the Egyptians were like, man, we got to get rid of these Israelites. You can't throw a rock without hitting one. They're everywhere. And so God sets his people free. He sends Moses. He gathers his people. He leads them out in the Exodus, leads them through the wilderness, leads them toward the promised land. And along the way, God says, we got to take the next step in making you a people. I've got a whole bunch of you now, but now I need to form and shape your identity. Let me give you my law. And so through Moses, he gives them his law, and the law becomes kind of their constitution, and the law becomes um, sort of the, the heart, the epicenter of who they are as a people. And along with that, he gives them this shared story of the Exodus, which molds their identity and even shapes their, their, their ethics, right? So God says to them things like this, you shall treat the stranger well, remembering that you were a slave in Egypt. So that whole story, that whole narrative, those centuries that God is taking to form this people is in fact producing a new identity, a shared identity built around the word of God. Now when you come to the New Testament, Jesus comes and all of a sudden what had been uniquely promised to Israel gets exploded open and is now offered to all the nations. And God begins that process again. You remember the very first disputes in the New Testament church were disputes about what we're going to do with these Gentiles? Do they have to be circumcised or not? Are they a part of the people of God? Peter went to a Gentile's house, preached the gospel, whole revival broke out Cornelius' house. Next time he got with the Jews, the Jews were like, bro, you know we don't go to Gentiles' houses. What you doing over there? Peter like, all I know, man, is... I told them the gospel, the same gospel we heard, they spoke in tongues the way we spoke in tongues. Seemed like to me, God shows no partiality with man. And so the church then began to wrestle with the inclusion of people from every nation into this one new nation called the church. It's a project of forming a people. To become a people you're going to need a shared story. You're going to need a shared word, the scriptures. And you're going to need shared experience over a long time. The American church for a long time has been saying, not my people, while claiming to be God's people. You were
worship over there. We'll worship over here. We'll all say we're God's people. We'll have a gentleman's handshake, but we ain't really got to praise together. The original sin of the American church is this kind of racism and racial apartheid, even in the church. If we live like that, beloved, we sabotage our identity as the people of God, the people who were not God's people, who have now become God's people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the step we've got to take as a church. We've got to take a step, self-consciously and intentionally, toward being the people of God from every tribe, nation, language, background, skin color, hair texture, height, gluten allergy, whatever. We've got to take a positive, definite, self-conscious step in the direction of being one new people made up of people from every background. That's what God is doing. And if that's not what we're doing, we're working at cross-purposes to God. Y'all tracking with me? Y'all real quiet. Now, I'm saying this good. I'm glad you're thinking. I'm, I'm with that. Now, I'm saying this not because I know of any particular problem in the life of our church. I'm saying this because I know if our default assumption is the assumption that we were discipled with or grew up with, then we will default toward balkanization. We'll default toward middle walls of hostility, which Christ has torn down. But we can be a new people. We are a new people. We've got to live into it across all of our differences. And we have them. And they're meaningful. But they're not ultimate. Christ is. Christ is all and is in all. And he has made us a new people. And that's what we've got to have clear in terms of our identity. So real quick, four or five quick applications. Then we're at our last point. Then we're gone. Number one. Let us root our identity in the peoplehood of God rather than the brotherhood of man. Let's root our identity in the fact that we are God's people, not merely in the fact that we are kindred physically with some people. Now, let me just say one other word about this. Is, this, this is hard. What we're talking about is hard. I hope you all know that. What I'm talking about is hard, and it takes centuries. So what we will do as a church is just move the football down the field about three yards, okay? Let me tell you why it's hard. <laughs> because some of us, the treatment that we receive in society and the treatment we receive in the church is not based on the fact that we are God's people. It's based on the fact that we are an ethnic people or we are gendered people, right? So the site the location, the target of our mistreatment is something usually that's natural about us. Our ethnic identity, for example, or the fact that we're a woman or, or what have you. That's the site of our mistreatment, right? And if we sort of call upon each other to root our identity in the fact that we're God's people in a way that ignores that, we will be doubling the damage that's done over here. You tracking with me? So you can't look at mistreated women and say, hey, we're all the people of God, don't worry about being a woman. In, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. It's like if those things don't exist, 
That sentence don't make no sense. And why does Paul spend so much time in the New Testament addressing those very things? No, what he means is they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't have ultimate meaning. But indeed, beloved, how we negotiate those things has true meaning. And it brings glory to God. So if we're going to root our identity in the fact that we are the people of God, let's not make the mistake then that the, of, of sort of denying other aspects of our identity, even if they're secondary, because that's usually the place where we experience mistreatment. If we experience mistreatment because we're all Christians, that's easy. We all share in that. We know we're being persecuted. We rejoice to be suffering for the name of Christ. But if my sisters suffer because they're sisters, and I don't stand in solidarity with them in that, I do violence to them twice, both by abandoning them as sisters and not recognizing our shared peoplehood in a healthy way. Y'all tracking with me? A lot of work to do. So number one, we want to root our identity in the fact that we're the people of God rather than merely the fact that we are, you know, brotherhood. We have brotherhoods and sisterhoods in other ways. Number two, number two, let's commit this year to practicing hospitality commit this year to practicing hospitality. It's a word that literally means lover of stranger, right? So look out across the room to somebody who sits on the other side of the room. You see them over there all the time. They don't sit on your side of the room, so you don't talk to them, right? Right. Find that person. Love that person. Invite them over for dinner. Invite them out for lunch. Invite them to the movies. Invite them just take a walk. Go ride on the bike with Lloyd. Whatever it is. Dennis, we'll go take your bike riding. Um, if you want fellowship with me, it's probably going to be over at Xbox. Come to the house, we play Xbox. Find that thing and share something with someone not like you. So we can close the gap, the distance between us that's caused by our natural, dis- by differences, right? And begin to jo- enjoy the unity we have because we are the people of God. Practice hospitality. Number three, accept one another. Accept one another. Um, Lord just gave me this, especially in 2024. We're about to run up into another election season. It's already crazy. The last time, the last two times, the craziness of the culture came right on into the church like it was an invited guest, right? Okay, we don't need to repeat that kind of craziness. Not as God's people. This world is not our home. This nation is not our true nation. We are now a chosen race. We are now a holy nation. We are a new people. Yes, we have affinity for uh, this country because this is where we live, or maybe this is where we were born, et cetera, but this country ain't ultimate. You realize America is not in the book of Revelation. Might not be here at the end, but the church will be church will be. And so it's vital that we accept one another as elephants and donkeys and independents. It's vital that we accept one another with different politics and, and, and different issues and needs that come to the top of our concern. It's vital that we practice that Romans chapter 14 and 15, accepting one another in disputable matters. What's indisputable is Christ is Lord. That's what unites us. And so number three, we're going to accept number one. Number four is a cousin of number three, Ephesians 4, 3. Let us recommit to doing everything to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Do everything, the Bible says, to maintain the unity of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the unity that he gives us in the bond of peace. 
not the bond of power, not the bond of coercion, not the bond of some other kind of influence, but in the bond, the glue of peace. And number five, let's be willing to pay the cost for unity in Christ everywhere it's necessary. For us to be a people, we're going to have to identify with each other at points and places and times where it costs us. Might cost us some allegiance to family, might cost us some allegiance to uh, an ethnic group or a gender group, might, might cost us some allegiance to our economic class. But somewhere, given the diversity in this room, if we're going to be committed to being a people, even though we have some differences, somewhere we're going to feel the cost of that. Don't, don't, don't think of that as the church being broken. Think of that as one of the ways God sanctifies us and makes us his people. That cost we pay. It would have been easy for Jews in, uh, in the first century Israel, and some of them did, to say, you know what, what we should do is just go ahead and get along with the Romans and cooperate with the Romans who've taken over our country, right? It would have been harder to say, no, let me stand with my Jewish brothers and sisters against Roman occupation and suffer if that's what's needed. We want to be like Moses who considered it more worthwhile to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the delicacies and the pleasantries of growing up in Pharaoh's house. Let us be prepared for that, to do everything to maintain the union spirit in the bond of peace and to pay the cost of that for the sake of the unity and the joy and the peace and the vitality and the holiness of God's church. Which brings us to our final point. What made the difference in the beginning of verse 10, how we went from not being God's people to being God's people? Well, it's right there at the end of verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a really sweet line. Why is that such a sweet line? Why is that such a big deal? Well, without mercy, God would then treat our sins the way our sins deserve. The Bible asks this question, if God were to hold our sins against us, who could stand? None of us. If God in his holiness and his righteousness were to, to, to judge us the way we actually deserve to be judged as people who used to love darkness and, and people who still fight the good fight of faith against sin, if he were to call us to account for our sins, none of us could stand. What's marvelous is he's merciful. He punishes us less than our sins deserve. That's, that's what mercy means. In fact, he's also gracious. He, he blesses us. He gives us good despite our sin. That's what's happening with the cross. Jesus is there being mercy for us. He is there being grace for us. He is there absorbing God's wrath against our sin so that we could receive God's mercy and grace instead. We need such mercy. We deserve eternal death. 
But God in Jesus Christ gives us eternal life. We deserve eternal punishment. But God in Jesus Christ gives us the eternal reward of his kingdom. Praise God we have received mercy. And praise God we can say with the psalmist, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When did we receive this mercy? Well, Peter tells us in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who through God's power are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God had mercy for you before you were even born. And the moment that you came to faith in Christ, you received all of that mercy and the kingdom that comes with it. This is why we proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. This is why we praise him. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we want you to get in on this. God wants you to get in on this. This same mercy wasn't meant to come to Christians and be bottled up and put on a shelf. It was meant to flow through Christians out into the world so that others who are in need of God's mercy can hear of it and receive it and so be saved. It's what makes the difference. Once we did not have mercy, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were without God and without hope in the world. But then we heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ, we received mercy, and we went from being without God to with God, without hope to having a living hope, all because of his mercy shown on the cross, proved in the resurrection, given to you in the preaching of this good news. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, receive this mercy that we all need and that is freely offered. Confess your sins to God. Repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and come be a part of God's people, his holy people, his holy nation, his royal priesthood, his chosen race, and come enter into this great work of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't get it twisted. You are meant to be God's people. Don't try to be some other people. Put your faith in Jesus. Come be made new, entirely new, and have eternal life. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, your Son. You've done more for us than we've even been able to figure out. And we trust, and this is one of the great, great delights of being Christians, we trust that as we live and as we grow and as we give ourselves to your word, we trust we'll just keep discovering more and more about what you have done for us. We won't exhaust it. We'll be in heaven with you for all of eternity, and we will never run out of things to praise you for. 
And so we pray, help us to be that holy priesthood, that royal priesthood that begins that eternal work of praising you even now. Help us to be faithful to declare your excellencies. Help us to be faithful to tell people about how you brought us from darkness into light. Help us to be faithful to to stay away from the darkness, to turn into the light, to come where we can be seen and, and exposed and in that exposure be made more like Jesus. Help us to be your one people. Grant that in this church and in all your churches, we would, by your grace, conquer racial animosity. That we would conquer the kinds of um, sinful tribalism and separation and hostility that has forever marked the world but should not characterize your church. Help us to be people who are quick to repent and to confess. Help us to be people who are eager to accept one another. Help us to be people who are eager to stand in solidarity with the suffering because they're your people. Help us to be wise and discerning in a world that's so confused. Just by way of example, Lord, we have brothers and sisters who are Palestinian and brothers and sisters who are Israeli. Lord, please keep us from identifying with power instead of identifying with who you identify with, the marginalized, the oppressed, the mistreated. Give us wisdom to understand your word accurately, <laughs> that, that your word is concerned from the time of Christ to the time of his coming, not with a patch of land in the Middle East, but with this new people who are the new Israel, who are made up of Jew and Gentile. Help us to recognize, O oh Lord, that you are not a God of ethnic superiority. You're a God of redemption and inclusion, and righteousness and holiness and justice. And help us to use our voice the way you would use your voice to advocate for those things. Help us to do that locally, in small ways, inside of our family as we seek to be your people. Help us to do that abroad and, and maybe more public in larger ways as we seek to stand in the gap um, for, for, for righteousness. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the people that you're making us to be. We realize it's slow, slow work, but do it, Lord. Transform us into your likeness, we pray. In Jesus' name.